Again, that's Ephesians 1, 1 through 14, on page 976. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he had set forth in Christ as planned for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Um, thanks for joining us. We are continuing our series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, before we jump in, I want to take a minute and actually pray for a friend of mine, um, fellow pastor Jonathan McIntosh. Um, he and I served together at The Journey. He planted a church in Memphis, and they have their two-year anniversary today, um, Christ City Church down in Memphis, and they have this outdoor event scheduled, planning for like 300 people, outdoor baptisms and all the rest of it. And um, we're trying to help pray the rain away. Um, it's an outdoor event, and they've got this big storm coming. And so we're going to pray to the God of all weather. And um, you're going to pray with me, and we're going to pray for these guys that they end up having a great celebration and that God glorifies himself. So pray with me. Father, we thank you that, um, that you are a God of mission, that you are determined um, to carry the news of your son forward and see people redeemed and restored. And I thank you that um, my friend Jonathan is on that mission and that Christ City Church in Memphis is uh, preaching the gospel and, Lord, you're doing very cool things there. I'm excited for them and I pray this morning that you'll give them a great time gathering in worship and around your word and, and um, in celebration with baptisms. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would give them good weather, that you would um, protect their gathering, uh, allow them to have the celebration um, if the weather comes, I pray, Lord, that you will give them great joy in it and uh, give them wisdom as they try to make alternate plans on the fly. Lord, you're in it all. And we know that um, in the end, the things that are most worthwhile, the things that truly last, don't come from our planning. They come from your hand. And so I pray, Lord, that your name would be made great there this morning and that people would walk away um, not raving about Jonathan or the church or anything else, but they would really just be raving about you. Um, so, so God, glorify yourself there. We pray that you'll be with us here this morning as well, that as we open your word, that um, your spirit will open our eyes and our ears, that we will um, be drawn to once again consider the person and the work of Christ, and that our hearts would be led to a place of humility and gratitude and worship. Um, so, Father, speak through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, we are continuing our series through um, Ephesians, and we are in week four. We've been working our way through chapter one. Um, 
definitely the deep end of the pool. There's a lot of very complex uh, theological stuff going on here that we're trying to unpack so we can both understand it and engage it in a way that, that God has um, you know, designed us to. He's revealed this stuff to us because it's important, and we want to make sure that we are um, engaging it in the proper way. Verses 3 through 14. Remember, one sentence in the Greek. We've broken it into three messages because it is so complex. It's a beautiful sentence. Uh, Paul just basically explodes on the page. And at the beginning of the sentence, he's talking about eternity past and God the Father in His sovereignty, um, decreeing all things and, and working out the sovereign plan of His will. And then the hero of the story comes on the scene, Jesus, the one who ultimately... Um, solves our greatest problem, uh, stands in as our substitute, um, takes our, uh, the death we deserve so that we can get a life we can never earn. And then we're moving to this section this morning where we're talking kind of about where we are now, where we're going in the future, um, eternity future, as far as, as what God's plan is to ultimately take sinners and turn them into saints. And that's kind of where we're rolling. So we've looked at the Father's plan two weeks ago. Um, he's the one who's decreed all things in His sovereignty those who would be saved, and ultimately the price that would be paid to save them and deliver them from the consequences of their sin. We've talked about Jesus, the hero of the story, the one who laid down his life and then ultimately rose again, the just for the unjust, to win the day for us. And right in the middle here, before we get to the role of the Spirit, um, Paul kind of answers the question why he did it. This is our part of the story. This is our part of the story. This whole thing has been very... Um, God-centered, not real big on practical application over the last couple of weeks as we've unpacked this, um, but big on where we're supposed to focus our attention, how it's supposed to shape our affections, how it's supposed to move us to worship. So what's our part? Well, our part, honestly, is just not that attractive because all we bring to the table is our brokenness. He brings all the solution. Um, but He did this because He is determined not to be robbed of His glory in the created order. God is determined not to be robbed of His glory in the created order. He created all things to basically catch the overflow of all that He is, of all of His joy, of all of His beauty, of all of His... Everything that is worthwhile in life is an overflow of who He is. He didn't create us because He needed us. He didn't create us because He was lonely and needed a friend. He created us because there was so much of Him that that He created us to simply be the beneficiaries of it to walk in the fullness of the overflow of joy and love and and all the things that ultimately make Him glorious. And He is determined, even though mankind has rebelled against Him, ultimately sin has robbed Him temporarily of His glory in the created order. He has been separated um, by our rebellion against Him from us. He is determined not to be permanently separated from that. He will have a people. He will have a people, a people for His name, a people who will um, um, be made in His image, reflecting His glory, and, and living in the overflow of His joy. And that's exactly what He talks about in verses um, 11 through 13. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance. Now, of course, that in Him is Jesus. That's, that comes from the previous section we looked at last week, the fact that that in the Beloved, in Jesus, we have redemption, that He shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins, that He was our substitute, that He died in our place so that we could take His place in blessing. He took our sin, we get His righteousness as we simply trust in that, that He satisfied God's righteousness 
in regard to our sin. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance. Now, this is kind of a complicated phrase. It, it, it makes sense exactly as it's written, and, and in fact, is theologically true. In fact, it's the same point that Paul will make again down in verse 14, that, that we have an inheritance. As a result of our faith in Christ, we do receive an inheritance. There's, there's an expectation of more. We've been adopted as sons. That's what we learned last, uh, two weeks ago, that, that part of God's plan to redeem sinners, to take sinners and make them saints, was in fact to adopt them into His family, to adopt them as sons. And as sons, there is an inheritance. But I really don't think that's actually the point of this phrase. This is a complicated phrase in the Greek grammar, and it actually makes it fairly difficult to, to translate, and translators actually fall on two sides of the fence. Let me explain. The first is exactly as we have it translated. That, that is, that we have an inheritance, which is a true statement, that we have, in a sense, um, been allotted a portion. That's what that, that, that verb literally means, that there was an allotment of a portion, like a father who, who takes his inheritance and says, my firstborn will get this, and, and my second child will get this. He allots a portion. We have been given an inheritance. The problem is that the verb is passive, and I'm an English nerd, and, and those things are important to me. What that means is that the subject's actually receiving the action, not doing it. When the verb is active, the subject is doing the action, right? Um, I hit the ball. I I am doing an action. When it's passive, I I am receiving the action, right? I was hit by the ball, right? Um, This is passive. And so we have to actually imply the subject. And I think what what is really going on here is, is this, that we are the allotted portion, not, not that we receive an inheritance. I don't think that's Paul's point here. That is a point that he'll make. I think what he's saying is that we are the inheritance for God, the implied subject, that we have been made the allotted inheritance of God, that, that God has chosen a people for His name, and those people will be the inheritance of His plan. That at the end of the day, what he will get is a group of people who will live in his image for his glory, receiving the outflowing of all that is good in him. It is a beautiful statement of redefined um, people of God. He will have a people who live eternally for his glory. We look at people today and we make quick judgments based on how they're dressed, color of their skin, um, things that we perceive about them, socioeconomic status, racial status, um, gender, um, yeah, what subculture they belong to, you know, what, how they wear their hair, what t-shirt they're wearing, those sorts of things. We make very quick judgments and we classify people in those ways. And one of the things that you're going to realize as we look at what we're talking about is that God is in the business and, and actually in the process of creating a whole new people. A people group that is not defined by race. A people group that is not defined by socioeconomic status. Not defined by where you went to high school or what college you went to. Not defined by what kind of music you listen to or what kind of things you enjoy. It's a a whole new kind of people made up of thieves and liars and perverts and rebels and self-righteous. It's made up of all broken people. (laughs) Nobody deserves to be in this group. But that's the beauty of it. He's taking this, this diverse group, and the one thing they all have in common is that they don't deserve to be in it, and he is turning them from saints into sinners. He is calling them out, 
saving them by grace, putting them on a path of faith, and setting them apart for glory. In fact, that's one of the major themes of the book of Ephesians that we will get into as we continue to move through this, this idea that God is creating a new people, a radical new people, defined by a radical new covenant for a radical new purpose in life, that 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 is part of what God is doing now, not just in the future. He will have His people in the future. He will have a, a, a wonderful wedding supper of the, of, the, of the Lamb described in the book of Revelation where He will sit down and celebrate with His people the fruits of His labor, that He will party with them um, and, and celebrate the fact that they are redeemed and forgiven and have a new hope for the future. He's in the process of making that people now. It is a new way of approaching life, and that's one of the major themes we'll unpack as we continue to move forward. At this point, Paul's merely hinting at it. In fact, we see that in verses um, 12 and 13, where he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, or in him we have become an inheritance, jump down to verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. What does he mean by we who were the first to hope in Christ? Well, there's two major interpretations. One would be that he's talking about himself as part of the early church, like he was one of the first believers. Now, we know from Paul's story, he wasn't the first because um, he was actually a persecutor of the early church, became a believer um, after many years of persecuting the church and even putting people to death in it. And God, in His grace, broke into his life and said, that's enough of that. You're going to be mine. I mark you uh, for my glory. I don't think that's what he's talking about, himself as an early believer. I think he's talking about himself in his Jewish identity. I think what he's saying is, historically, the people of God was the nation of Israel. I mean, when you read through the Old Testament, it's, it's, you, you can't get around that. He, God entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant set them apart from all the rest of the nations of the world. In fact, the two terms that we use, Israel and Gentiles, mean that very thing. Israel, of course, speaks of the sons of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Gentiles is a word that simply means nations. Everyone else. In the Old Testament, there's two groups of people, the Gentiles, who are everyone else, and the nation of Israel. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't work with the Gentiles in the Old Testament. We'll get into some of that, but here's the point. I think what he's saying is is God is in the business of taking what He did in the past. Those of us who were the first to, to hope in Christ, those of us who were the historic people of God, and He's combining us. In verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, you Gentiles, us today, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were brought into the same people of God. It's a radically um, newly defined people of God with, 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 with huge practical implications that we'll take a look at as we continue to move forward. So why did God make this plan? What's our part in this plan is ultimately to be the recipients of his grace. To be, to be the recipients, the benefit. He just wants to give us the benefit of His plan and everything that He has done well. Now, in the middle of this description of our role in this is once again an assertion of the sovereignty of God. Go back to verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You're not going to find... This is among the strongest statements in all of Scripture describing the sovereign nature of God. According to this verse, what falls outside of the scope of God's sovereignty? He has predestined us according to the purpose of Him who works, what? All things. 
according to the counsel of his will. There is nothing that happens that happens outside of the decree of God. Now, does that mean that God is the author of evil? No. Within the decree of God, he has given man, as we talked about last week, the sense of concurrence that while he is sovereignly decreeing all things, he gives man the responsibility to make choices. And when we make responsibilities toward, uh, uh, choices toward evil, we are responsible for those choices. We're responsible for every choice we make. But in the end, God is absolutely sovereign. It is a theological paradox. It is, a, it is an incredibly difficult thing to try to understand because ultimately it can't be understood. But we are given a very simple statement, this, that God has one counselor and he always listens to him. Who's his counselor? Himself. He works all things according to the good counsel of his own will. God, in his absolute goodness, in his absolute wisdom, in his absolute sovereignty, listens to his own advice and ultimately decrees all things according to the good counsel of his will. This is a hard truth sometimes to grapple with, and we'll wrestle with this a little bit more this morning as we continue to move through. But what I want you to hear is that ultimately the reason Paul is reasserting this, he already said it in the beginning of the sentence, at the very beginning when he said that, blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world and predestined us to to the uh, adoption of sons. The reason he's reasserting the sovereign nature of God here, because this is the bedrock of our security. This is the bedrock of what makes us secure in our understanding of who God is and how we relate to Him. When you dig down far enough, you will find that God has built His plan of redemption on the bedrock of His absolute sovereignty. And everything that He's built on it through the work and the person of Christ rests in His unchanging, absolute, sovereign nature. And that ultimately is meant not to Um, lead us away, but toward God to increase our confidence. We'll unpack that as we continue to move forward. At the end of verse 13, we're introduced to the third person in this trinity of roles, and that's the Spirit. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that would be us, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So we've looked at the role of the Father, we've looked at the role of the Son, and now we kind of get to the role of the Spirit. What is the Spirit's role in God's plan of redemption? The Spirit's role, very simply, is to create the new community that God has ordained. It's His job to take the good news of the gospel and carry it forward and set people apart for His glory. His job is to draw to seal, to protect, and deliver. Um, The Father elects, Jesus saves, the Spirit draws and seals. So ultimately, it's the Spirit's job to create the very community that God has planned um, to create as His inheritance. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, but I want to start kind of at the beginning because to tell you the truth, there's a lot of confusion about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is an issue that, that I have found that, that um, sometimes I'll be in conversations with people and we're using the same exact words, like, like the same exact jargon, and we mean very, very different things. And so I think it's going to be worthwhile to pause. And there's so much here, I can't unpack a, a complete theology of the Spirit, but I want to unpack a few things that I think are essential to our, our understanding of who He is and what He does so that we can make sure that we understand this. 
I'll give you a little bit of history with, with my experience. Um, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. Um, my early days, I was that kid, right? If you don't know who the Jehovah's Witnesses were, uh, these are the people that go around door to door, right? Knocking on the door, selling Watchtower and Awake magazines. Um, they're not always really well received. Um, most of us do not enjoy having people soliciting us from door to door. And, and that was just as true when I was little as it is today. And so my job was to be the icebreaker. It was my job to actually go and knock on the door so that when they opened the door, there was a cute kid, right? When I was small, I actually was cute. Um, and, and so my job was to go up and be cute and, and basically offer them a watchtower and awake, which I still remember we were selling for a dime. It was a dime, but we were, that's what we were doing. We were selling the watchtower and awake door to door. Um, during this period of time, I was taught some very specific things about the Holy Spirit. I was taught that the Holy Spirit isn't even a person, that that's a personification of a force, right? I mean, think about the name Holy Spirit. What kind of name is that, right? That's like a description. The dude doesn't even have a name, right? Holy Spirit? I mean, what other, you know, so they're like, oh, obviously, this is a personification of the power of God, the Spirit of God moving out and accomplishing things. He's not really a person. Um, he's, he's an impersonal force, the power of God simply being personified. Well, then I had a cousin who was a Mormon. Um, and of course, as kids do, we got into theological debates, right? That's what you did when you were little, right? Um, <laughs> not really. But we would. And it's, it, my, my cousin believed this, and we found that there was um, uh, tension in the family as a result. Um, they believed something very different. She believed that God the Father and God the Son were both part of the, what they would call the Godhead, but they were, in fact, two separate individual gods. They, they were both people. They were disembodied spirits who became people and then attained Godhead. And then God the Father was given a world, and, and God the Son was in the process of attaining Godhead, and He would be given another world. Well, that didn't help me because the Holy Spirit's really creepy there because He's just in a disembodied spirit that never actually gets a body. He's a person, part of the Godhead, but for some reason He never gets a body. He's just a spirit. Okay, that, that kind of just is floating out there and never actually gets to go through the process that the others went through. Later on, I got a hold of a King James Bible, um, and I love the King James Bible. It, it is, I am a literature guy. You guys know I'm a former English teacher. You're going to find no richer, more beautiful literature in the English language than the King James Bible. It really is beautiful. But there are some things that are challenging in there. Um, part of that is when they translated the, the pronouns about the Holy Spirit, they, tra- they translated it, it. So it'll be talking about the Holy Spirit, and it'll say, it did this, and it did that. Uh, beyond that, it doesn't even say Holy Spirit. It says Holy Ghost, which that was kind of freaky to me, right? Because I'm thinking, you know, you're kind of a version of Casper, but you're just not friendly, right? You're not the friendly ghost. You're the Holy Ghost, which makes you really kind of scary to me. Um, that didn't help a lot. That seemed to alienate. That language was not inviting. Later, I became a believer and started studying and uh, realized a little bit about, and we'll unpack this idea of what it means to believe in a trinity. And I, I started attending Trinitarian churches, churches that believed in a trinity. And I found that there was a world of difference between these churches themselves. I would go to some churches that were Trinitarian, and honestly, I think they would be terrified if the Holy Spirit actually showed up. They believed in Him. They talked about His name. But if He ever actually appeared, like, like if there was a clear movement of the Spirit, if people were actually like, I don't know, empowered, healed, um, Spirit of God demonstrated His power, they would have died. I mean, they would have been terrified by the presence because while they believed in Him, they were, in a sense, um, 
they, they, were, they, they didn't just believe the gifts ceased. It was almost as if the power of the Spirit and the presence of the Spirit ceased. On the other side, though, uh, my friends were inviting me to this other church, and I would go there, and it was like the Spirit was all there was, right? It was like the Father and the Son are really just stepping stones to get to the Spirit, right? Even up front, there was a cross, but you couldn't even see the cross because there was such a huge image of the Spirit superimposed over the top of it that you couldn't even see the cross. The point wasn't Jesus. The, the point was the miraculous outflowing of the power of the Spirit. And, and the, the whole reason they gathered was simply to have these incredible experiences. And, and, and ultimately, the Spirit became the center of their gathering. I mean, what radically different approaches um, to this whole thing. Today, the confusion isn't even any better. Uh, I have some friends that, that um, are struggling through this, this whole idea of what it means to be uh, a trinity, and they're, and they're superimposing, I believe, what are some of the cultural struggles we're having today about gender and, and, and power structures and things like that onto the biblical text. Um, and I have a friend who, who basically talks about the Spirit as being kind of the mother God or the goddess of the Godhead. The Spirit is the feminine side of God, and, and in fact, He would translate it she. Every time the, the Spirit does something, He would say she does something. Um, this one person in this group described Him as, as the gentle and shy side of God. Um, we're left in the end with some fundamental questions. What does the Bible have to say about the Holy Spirit? Who is He, she, it? What are we supposed to understand about Him, and how do we relate to Him today? I can't answer all those questions completely, but there are a few basic ones I want to address. First of all, let me make it clear that the Bible teaches that there is one God. We are what is called a monotheistic religion. We believe that there is one God. In fact, the Scripture again and again and again drives home this central assertion. Um, Just look right there across the page in Ephesians. Look over in Ephesians chapter 4. It's just the next page over. In verse 5, well, actually, we'll start in verse 4. It says, There is one body and one spirit, one body of believers, one spirit that unites them, just as you were called in one hope, one message of the gospel <clears throat> that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A very clear statement of the monotheistic nature of our faith. There is one God and Father over all. That, that is the consistent teaching of Scripture. One of the clearest statements that I've seen is in the book of Isaiah. When you get into the Old Testament, Isaiah was writing um, to Israel, but they were surrounded by what we call polytheistic religions. They had a lot of idols. Um, they basically had gods that represented almost everything in culture. They believed that there were many, many, many gods. And, and so they would, if they were sick, they would turn to this god. And if they were financially in trouble, they'd turn to this god. And if they had marital problems, they would turn to this god. Um, and, and in Isaiah, God says this, Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. We are a monotheistic religion. We believe that there is one God. That is at the heart of our understanding of who God is. The challenge, though, is that our view of monotheism is not simple. It is filled with mystery. Because while God reveals Himself to us as one God, He reveals His nature to us as being a complex relationship of three persons. That there is one what and three who's. One God, three people, three individual unique personalities, three individuals, 
Uh, and the Spirit is one of those three. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And what this means is that the, the Holy Spirit is, is, is absolutely equal to the Father and the Son, united with them in nature. So everything that the Spirit is, the Father is. Everything that the Spirit is, the Son is. He is just as powerful. He knows just as much. He is just as righteous and holy. He is just as gentle. He is just as loving and mercy as the Father and the Son. They share the, the unique attributes of deity together. They are God as one. Um, and, and so in that sense, they're not unique. They, they are united, absolutely united as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are unique in their personhood. And we see that as we read through the Scriptures. You see that the Holy Spirit thinks. The Holy Spirit moves people to speak. Um, he feels. Scripture tells us that we can grieve the Spirit as followers of Christ. What that means is that we can, in fact, resist Him and make Him sad. Or, or, or better put, He's coming to us and trying to aid us in walking in a way that will take us to the full glory of what we were created to experience. And when we resist and fight against Him, it grieves Him. He's a person who, who has feelings and acts uniquely and can be honored and offended in fact, in the early church, there was a situation where Ananias and Sapphira, these two, this couple in the early church basically um, lied to the apostles and in so doing actually misrepresented the nature of the gospel. And in this early stage of the church growth, that was a serious crime because as they misrepresented the gospel, they could undercut the power of the gospel <clears throat> at a critical time of growth. And so Peter confronted them and basically said to them, this is an incredibly um, uh, uh, offensive thing that you've done. You have, in fact, blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You have lied about the person and the character of the Holy Spirit. He speaks of Him in those terms. And as a result, the Spirit of God actually took their lives. Now, it doesn't mean that, that if they were believers, they lost their place in heaven, but it means in that point in time, their crime was so severe, so critical a hit to the, to the movement of the gospel that God basically said, I'm going to take you out um, for the advancement of the gospel. See, that's what the Spirit, He is a person. He is holy. He is powerful. He is unique in his uh, um, person and in his role, but absolutely the same in his nature. So what is his unique role? How is the Spirit unique? Well, here's the deal. The Spirit consistently does the work and gives the credit. When you look through the entire Bible, what you find is that the Spirit of God is the one who does the work and gives the credit. As I was struggling through this, trying to figure out how best to explain this and help us engage this, um, I, I think the best comparison would be to somebody who has what we call the gift of helps. There are different gifts talked about in the Bible that, that different people have. Some have the gift of teaching, some have the gift of leadership, some have the gift of giving, some people have the gift of helps. It's a, it's a supernatural gift that the Spirit of God gives to believers to use for the good of the body of Christ, to be used in the church. And some people have the gift of helps. Maybe you have it. You probably know somebody who has it. Um, I'm married to somebody who has it. My wife, Lauren, has the gift of helps. Um, that is what makes her tick. And, and you know what she loves? She loves to do the work and give the credit. She's the person, when I'm coming up with all these crazy plans, I'm the one that's like dreaming about all this stuff. I'm the one making a mess. She's the one quietly in the background helping organize everything. 
She's the one quietly making sure that, that the details are taken care of, that things actually get done. Um, she, she loves to be the one in the background, constantly building things up um, and simply laboring. The thing that makes her tick, she loves to be given an important job and to have an important role in helping get it done. She loves to be on mission, getting important things done. And then pointing, she's, she's most content when she gets to do that and, and the spotlight's on somebody else. She loves to point the spotlight on someone else. And that is very much um, a description of the Spirit of God. Um, see, it isn't like the gift, person with the gift of helps minds being noticed. It's not that they mind being thanked. It's not that they mind having somebody show them gratitude. But that's not what drives them. They're not driven... Um, in any way to, to take the stage. And in fact, uh, um, she's very uncomfortable with the fact that I'm even using her as an illustration today. She's not a person that likes in any way to, to be brought out into the spotlight. It's not that she's insecure and can't handle it. It's just that that's not what is natural to her. And the Spirit a lot is like that. The Spirit tirelessly works behind the scenes to effectively carry forward the gospel, to call people to Jesus to make sure they come alive in Jesus, to make sure they're sealed in Jesus, and they're delivered ultimately to eternal life in Jesus. He is tirelessly working in the power of the gospel, but he does it in such a way that he's constantly pointing the fame to Jesus. He's constantly directing attention to Jesus. I think that's why significantly in much of the scripture, he's simply called the Spirit. He doesn't even, it's not that he's even trying to put out a name whereby he would be known. He is letting us know his character and his nature, but his focus is to redirect glory to Jesus. And what's interesting is that the Father also gives glory to Jesus. And Jesus um, basically says that, that all the glory he receives, he gives to his Father. We see in the nature of God a humble giving of glory that there is a continual community of self-giving, of other-glorifying, self-sacrificing nature that we even see in the character, the eternal nature and character of God. And the Spirit represents that side of of the giving. Now, Jesus talked about the Spirit of God and actually gave him a name. He said his name is the paraclete or the helper. The Greek word paraclete means somebody who comes alongside and aids. And he talked about him in John chapter 16. Now, John chapter 16, it's the night Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's going to be delivered up to crucifixion. The disciples don't know that yet. So he is preparing them for what's coming. And he says this. Go ahead and put that up there. John 16, 7 through 11. He says this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. He's speaking to his disciples. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. All right. It's not that he wasn't already there. But the Spirit was going to have a new and unique ministry after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in Me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. And you'll see Me no longer. Concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. So the Spirit's going to have a unique role. <laughs> And when you just read this passage like casually, it doesn't seem like a real attractive role. You know what I'm saying? Like he's going to convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. He's going to be like the heavy, right? That's what it sounds like. He's just going to come in and make sure everybody feels like garbage. You know, he wants to make sure you know you suck, right? And, and how badly, cosmically, you do before the throne of God. I'm going to make sure you know your sin 
how far you fall short of righteousness and that there is impending judgment. Okay, that's a misreading of the text. That is not what it says. In fact, what I've just described is actually the work of the enemy, not the work of the Spirit. We have an enemy. Um, Scripture describes him. He's named Satan. Um, His name means the adversary. He's called the liar, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the saints. His his role, you you know what he does? He's continually trying to show you your sins so you feel beat down and condemned. He's constantly showing you how lousy you are. He's constantly showing you everywhere you have fallen short. Why? So that you can get stuck in it. He wants you to be under a blanket of condemnation. And when you're under a blanket of condemnation, you feel like there's absolutely nothing you can do that's good or worthy or measures up. You feel completely worthless and separated from dignity and purpose and and the glory of God. That's where he wants you. That's not the role of the Spirit. That's not what the Spirit's doing. Look carefully at this text and see what he's doing. He's saying, first of all, he's going to convict us concerning sin, specifically because they don't believe in me. See, what he's doing is showing us our sin so that we can see there's something better. He's showing us that we have a need for a Savior. He's showing us that we need to move in faith toward the one who can solve our greatest problem. He's going to convict us concerning righteousness, not because we don't measure up, but because Jesus does. He's going to draw our attention to Jesus who's before the Father. See, after Jesus died and rose again, he ascended into the presence of God. Scripture says that he is standing now as an advocate between us and God. When we believe in him, Jesus basically is our lawyer, and and, and he pleads our case. He basically says, when you see this guy, you see me. When you see this guy, you see my righteousness, because I paid for his sin. I died for him, so he could live a new life with me. See, the Spirit of God comforts us by pointing us to our advocate. The the righteousness, not that we fall short, but that there is an alien righteousness that we can have. A righteousness that's not ours, that we didn't earn, that we could never deserve, but can be given to us as a free gift. Not only that, He convicts us concerning judgment. Not our impending judgment, but that Christ brought a judgment on the ruler of this world. That when He died on the cross, He destroyed the condemnation of our enemy that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that believe in Christ Jesus. That, that, that our greatest enemy, our greatest problem, our greatest sin was condemned in Christ. And God is absolutely satisfied in that judgment so we can be secure. Do you see how this is totally different? This isn't the Spirit showing up and saying, man, you stink. This is the Spirit showing up and saying, there's good news. It's the Spirit's job to draw our attention to the gospel. It's the Spirit's job to take the Word and make it come alive in our souls. Do you realize that, that, and I, as somebody who preaches the Word, I'm very aware of this. Um, My words can only go so far. In fact, my words are often woefully inadequate to actually carry the central message of the text. But my hope isn't in my ability to be, I don't know, eloquent or persuasive or funny You know what my hope's in? The Spirit of God. Because it's the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and makes it come to life in the the, the listening, in the soul of the hearer. Because remember, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You don't just need good advice about how to climb out of the pool. You're a corpse floating. You need the Spirit of God to come and breathe life into you so that you can wake up 
so that you can actually hear the message of good news. That's the role of the Spirit to come through the power of this message and ultimately awaken us. Here's the deal, you guys. If you have ever felt a stirring in response to the gospel, that's the Holy Spirit. If you have ever felt convicted, not condemned, but convicted of your sin, what's the difference? Well, when you're condemned, you know how sinful you are and you feel completely rejected. When you feel convicted, you know you're sinful, but you know there's something better. Like it, 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 conviction will level you in your brokenness, but it lifts you up because it refocuses your attention from your sin to Christ, your Savior. If you have ever been leveled in that kind of humble gratitude, realizing that you don't measure up, but He measures up on your behalf, that's the work of the Spirit of God within you. The Holy Spirit enlightening you to the reality of who Christ is and what He's done. He's the one that pricks the dead heart and gives it the ability to feel pain. And from that place of pain to show it that there is a solution for that pain. He's the breath of life that comes into the corpse and makes it open its eyes and see the truth. That's the work of the Spirit. And if you've believed the gospel, if you are a follower of Christ, you need to realize that's a miracle because that wasn't something you were even capable of doing on your own. The Spirit of God gave you that ability. I highlighted these verses two weeks ago when we looked at, at the first section of this, of this chapter. I'm going to highlight them again. This is John chapter 6, verses 37 um, and on. And I love this because this is Jesus basically unpacking to the disciples the very things we're studying in Ephesians. Jesus said this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's a statement of God's absolute sovereign control. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. God and His sovereignty. Basically saying, these are my people. This is my inheritance. They will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's man's responsibility. Every person who hears the gospel has the responsibility of responding to the gospel and believing. We can never say, we can never use election as an excuse for not believing the gospel. Well, I'm not elect, so therefore I'm not going to believe. Okay, that's one way to make sure you're sealed in your, in your position because the offer that's given to you is universal. Simply believe the gospel, and that proves that you're elect. That We have a responsibility to respond to the gospel. The election of God was never meant to actually handicap our ability to respond to the gospel. It's actually meant to give us a foundation from which to feel secure in the gospel. So whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And this is the will of him who sent me my Father, that I should lose nothing of all that's been given to me. So you're secure not only because the Father chose you, you're secure because I'm holding on to you. You're secure because I've grabbed hold of you, not because you've grabbed hold of me. And I'll raise it up on the last day. And it is the Spirit who gives life. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That is an incredibly powerful statement. Human will not strong enough. Human effort, not strong enough. Human religious behavior, not strong enough. The flesh is no help at all. It is the Spirit that gives life. That is His role, to ultimately empower the message of the gospel, to work through the work of the Son, to draw attention to the Son, and call a people to that Son as an inheritance to God. If we believed And I want you to catch this. If we believed in Jesus, I want you to catch how secure you are. The Father chose you, the the Son holds you, and and the Spirit empowers you. 
He's the one that's called you to life, and ultimately it's Him that seals us. Take a look again at, at verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Not only does He bring us to life, but He seals us in that life. Now, what does that mean that He seals us? Um, there are a number of images of what we would call sealing in um, Old Testament times or, or even in the early New Testament times. One would be um, similar to what we would call branding today. That's a lovely image. Um, a ranch would basically brand their um, image onto their cattle. They would even brand it onto their slaves, which is an incredibly unpleasant thought for us. But think about what that means. It means that you can't be stolen. It means that you can't be mistaken for somebody else's. It means that you belong to a family and you can never leave. Now, here's a more pleasant image because here's another image that, that also speaks of sealing, and that was the sealing that would be done on letters. Same idea, um, same word, and so I think just as legitimate of an illustration. During this period of time, um, believe it or not, they didn't have email. Um, Al Gore didn't live yet, so they didn't have the internet. Um, and so they had to actually write um, a long-lost art um, and it was even harder for them because they had to write on parchment. The paper was incredibly valuable. They had to use all kinds of crazy ink, blah, blah, blah. Wealthy people would write messages and have to send them across the kingdom. And, of course, they would send them with couriers. How would you secure? They didn't have encryption. How would you secure your message for that trip? Well, you would basically roll up the parchment paper. You would tie it up. You would drip hot wax on that, uh, that tie. And then you would take your signet ring. And you would impress the image of your signet ring on that wax. And, and when you did that, what you were doing is basically saying, this document is protected by my authority. The more powerful the person who owned the signet ring, the more protected the document. So if it was just Joe Blow down the street um, who had a couple clubs and a son, um, not a big deal. You could probably break that seal and, and get away with it. Okay, uh, if it's a if it's a wealthy landowner who actually has a small army, well, you might be in trouble. Depends on how much military you've got going for you. If it's the king, well, that's bad news because um, he's kind of powerful and he can basically kill you. Um, you guys, the seal that's on us is the image of the Spirit of God. When we believe in Christ, we are sealed in the Spirit. The image that is on us, the, the authority that protects us is the very character and power of God. That means that we are as secure as God is sovereign. It means that we are as forgiven as Jesus is holy. It means that we can rest in a sure hope of the future, as sure as the Spirit is strong. Absolute security. He seals us. And in that sealing, He also acts as the guarantee of our inheritance. That's what the rest of that verse says in verse 14. We were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire the full possession of it. You guys, we've been redeemed. Those of us who have believed in Christ, and this is the offer to those of you who don't, you can be redeemed. The price has been fully paid to buy you out of 
the condemnation of your sin and into the, the, the future hope of the righteousness of God. Our redemption is complete uh, positionally, but it's not progressively. What do I mean by that? I mean this. We still live in these bodies. We still live in a broken world. We still live in a time where, where our redemption is, is sure and completely paid for. We're not enjoying the full benefit of it yet. There will come a time where God will fully restore His glory to the created order. We're not going to go to heaven in, in the sense of like some people have this ethereal view of heaven. Uh, we're going to go play, you know, harps on a cloud and we're going to become angels. That, that's not biblical. We're humans. We're actually going to stay human. It's going to be different than now. We don't fully understand it, but there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And in that place, we will be human to the glory of God. And we will receive the full benefit, the full inheritance of our redemption. We haven't fully received it yet. It's our inheritance. It is something we look forward to. And the Spirit of God is our guarantee of it. That word guarantee literally means down payment. He's the down payment of heaven. He's the down payment of what our life is going to be like. What does that mean? It means that God Himself is our inheritance. Not crowns, not mansions, not God is our inheritance. And that actually only makes sense. You guys, when you get married, what's the inheritance or the benefit? Or what is it that you get out of marriage? Better house? Better tax situation? More money? (laughs) No. (laughs) Right? No. What's the benefit of marriage? Marriage. The inheritance of marriage is actually the benefit of moving into oneness with a person that you love, of loving and being loved, of knowing and being known, of moving into intimacy with one person in a unique way that God has created you to experience. The benefit of marriage is marriage. The benefit of marriage is the love and the experience of the relationship. That, what that means is that the reward of anything is intrinsic to that thing. And that's true for all of life. The best jobs, the reward isn't the money you get paid. Right? There are some people out there that are very well paid, and they hate their jobs. The best jobs, what is the intrinsic reward for the best jobs? You love what you're doing. You feel fully engaged in it. You feel absolutely fulfilled in it. You feel like this is what I was created to do. Right? The money is actually the byproduct of the joy that you get from the true intrinsic inheritance of the labor. You guys, when we move into relationship with God, the reward that we're pursuing is nothing other than God Himself, the source of life and all that is good. It is the very thing we crave in all of life. He is the down payment. And what that means is that in our current walk with God, as we draw near to God in the power of the Holy Spirit, He speaks to our souls in a powerful way of what life will be like when we are fully redeemed. He is the down payment of our inheritance. He's the one that gives us joy. He's the one that delivers us from sin. He is the one that ultimately helps us become the people we are created to be. Now, one final word about assurance as we kind of wrap this up, and it's this. The doctrine of election, I know for some people, is incredibly challenging. And I think it's incredibly challenging to us because it it flies in the face of what we culturally believe. Culturally, we believe that we are autonomous, that we are... Um, we need to stand on our own two feet, that we need to be independent, and ultimately that we need to be in control. And the doctrine of election flies in the face of all of those things. It basically says you're not in control. 
You don't have the ability to stand on your own two feet. You are not responsible for your, you, you can't ultimately take responsibility for your future because you have to trust that God is responsible for your future. And that makes us incredibly uncomfortable because we simply have to trust. And I know what happens, you guys. I know what happens. Maybe you can't relate to this yet. You probably will at some point. What ends up happening is sometimes you get frustrated in your walk with the Spirit. You start looking at your life and you're like, man, I am not who I was created to be. I wonder if I'm even a believer, right? You're like, man, I just, I'm struggling with sin. I feel distant from God. I, I, I don't even know if this stuff, I'm just struggling with this stuff. And I know this because I've been there. I know what it's like to be, be struggling and be like, I don't, even, I don't even know if I'm a believer. And, and the next thought that comes, what if I'm not one of the elect? What if in the end, this is just me spinning my wheels in the mud? Because I'm not one of the elect. That actually (laughs) can be one of the best things that happens for your faith. You know why? Because in that moment, you have nothing to turn to but the work of Christ. You can't even look to your faith and say, well, at least I have faith. You're not even sure you have that. In that moment, you, have, you are despairing of everything you have that you think takes hold of God, and all you have left is the promise that God takes hold of you in Christ. All you have left in that moment is the fact that Jesus was your substitute, that He died for your sins, that He rose again for your new life. And even though you feel incredibly distant from it, you have nothing that deserves it, you have nothing that can claim His presence, all you have is the promise that God will do it. You feel completely helpless, and in that place of helplessness, you have no choice but to rest in the promise that even when you're faithless, He's faithful, that it is not your grip of Him that saves you, but His grip of you. It takes you down to the very bedrock of our confidence that we have a God that is determined to redeem and restore, to choose, to act, to draw, to seal so that he can have an inheritance of people that will live for his glory and to his name. And at the end of the day, we won't even be able to look to our faith and say, look, I can hold my faith up. I deserve salvation. We're not going to be able to do that. At the end of the day, all we're going to be able to do is lift up Christ and say, the only reason I'm secure is because he died for me. And he rose again a new life for me. And in that place of utter dependence and utter helplessness, we will be fully empowered. And you will, in fact, experience a resurgence of joy You will, in fact, be delivered to a place of humble, free gratitude. (laughs) So God can even use your crisis of faith to build your faith. Do you get how radically secure you are? It is not dependent on you. It's dependent on Him. And in that place, we can come to simply rest and trust.